0: Heavenly Father, we just come before you uh, this morning. We quiet our hearts before your throne of grace. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word in a powerful and meaningful and personal way. We come before your throne acknowledging, Lord, confessing that, Lord, we have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. We recognize our need for the Savior, and we thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, Jesus, to die for us so that our sins in him might be forgiven. We thank you that you have taken our sins, and for those who believe you have cast them as far as the east as from the west, you count them against us no longer. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, your loving kindness, your forgiveness, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, open up our ears to hear, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, be with me, your unworthy servant, Lord, that you might proclaim your word to your people in a way that is helpful to them, that would prove to be encouraging, strengthening, edifying, Lord. Father, if there is anyone here who has yet to place their faith in Christ, I would pray even now, Lord, for their salvation, Lord. We pray for Pastor Mike as we know, Lord, that today he gets to minister the word at the memorial service to unsaved people. We pray your blessing upon Pastor Mike. Lord, fill him with your spirit and go before him and just strengthen him for the task ahead of him, Lord, and let there be that some might come to faith in Christ today under his preaching ministry, Lord. We pray, Father, for other churches uh, in the city and in the state and throughout this country, across the globe, Lord, your blessing upon the churches. We pray your blessing upon our missionaries, Lord as they gather, too, to worship you, Lord, this Lord's Day. And, Father, uh, we just, uh, above all things, we're thankful for Christ, whose blood was shed. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, fired from his job as a journalist and told that he lacked imagination and he had no good ideas. He followed up with an attempt as a business owner, but he was forced to file Bankruptcy, Such failures were a blow to his ego, yet these same failures helped to pave the way for Walt Disney to have a successful career. Uh, the boy was told that he was too stupid to learn anything. He was fired from his first two jobs for not being productive enough. He failed more than 10,000 times before successfully inventing the Edison light bulb. The report that the combine read, poor build, skinny, lacks great physical strength, lacks stature, lacks mobility, lacks a strong arm, and he gets knocked down too easily. But now, 20 years later, Tom Brady is considered by many to be the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL. He was experiencing a crisis of faith. Countless others were succumbing to the tide of liberalism. Educated men questioned the authority and inerrancy of scripture. He was being pressured to embrace the liberal approach to the Bible. And it was at Forest Falls that he wrestled with God. And he determined that he would take God at his word. And since then, he would not preach a message without declaring, the Bible says. And the Lord used Billy Graham in powerful ways to lead countless people across the globe to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these men experienced difficult days. Each was faced with the temptation to give up. But despite the challenges that they faced, they managed to press on until a door of success opened up for them. In our story today, we meet a man who had his own set of challenges. His second missionary journey included a sharp conflict with one of his best friends, it included failed attempts to minister in places where he had planned to go. It took him into unexpected places where he would suffer persecution. He was beaten thrown into prison, chased out of cities, hindered by Satan, and he was called names. Educated folks called him an idle babbler, a seed picker. In addition to this, he feared that his ministry to the Macedonians was in vain. He feared failure. By the time he arrives in Corinth, he is worn out, but he is far from finished, as we shall see. And our sermon this morning is entitled, God Encourages a Wary Servant. We're wrapping this around 10 observations in the story of how God encourages a wary servant, that is Paul, that results in a renewed commitment to serving the Lord. Again, 10 observations in the story of how God encourages a wary servant that results in a renewed commitment to serving the Lord. Observation number one, Paul arrives in Corinth. We read this in chapter 18, Acts 18, verse 1. It says that after these things, he, Paul, left Athens and he went to Corinth. You might recall that Athens was a city of learning. Many of its people boasted of a love for philosophy. At the same time, the Athenian culture was marked by an embracing of many idols, Paul observed the city full of idols, experienced anger regarding the idols, and he proceeded to confront the idolatry with a gospel proclamation. He presented a magnificent picture of the person of God, but the response was not quite what Paul had hoped for. Paul prematurely leaves the city, and then he travels alone 50 miles south to Corinth. He arrives in Corinth discouraged. Despondent, weak, and perhaps physically ill. You'll recall from 1 Corinthians, where Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 2 1 that he came to the Corinthians in weakness, fear, and with much trembling. Uh, the weakness, fear, and trembling that Paul suffered upon arriving in Corinth was likely linked to many of the struggles that Paul experienced during. His second mission trip, Uh, it began with Paul's sharp disagreement with his close friend Barnabas. Uh, It included failed attempts to travel into Asia and then into Bithynia. Nevertheless, the apostle Paul pressed on. He received clear direction from Troas, from the Lord, uh, uh, to travel into Macedonia. And there he's going to get into Philippi. He's going to plant a church there. But such an effort came at a cost. Paul would be beaten. He would be imprisoned. When released, he advances to Thessalonica. And within a short period of time, he is chased out of Thessalonica by the Jews. And then he ends up in Berea. But the Thessalonian Jews caught wind of it. They come down into Berea in order to harass Paul and stir up the crowds against him. Once again, he is forced to leave and he heads to Athens. And while in Athens, he delivers a sermon from Mars Hill. It's not well received. There will be no church plant in Athens. And then he takes off on this 50 mile hike to Corinth. We also know from his letter to the Thessalonians that he was overwhelmed with concern For their spiritual well-being. He was afraid that the devil might have undermined his ministry in the Thessalonians. Uh, He even declares that Satan thwarted his efforts to see the Thessalonians. And so Paul has suffered spiritual attack. And now he is in Corinth, the city of Corinth, a city that was steeped in evil. It was steeped in wickedness. At the center was a hill upon which the Acropolis stood. In the Acropolis was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. Her followers engaged in sexual activity as an act of worship. Prostitution was an integral part of this Aphrodite temple worship. And every night, tens of thousands of prostitutes would descend from the hill and engage in their wicked behavior. The sexual sins of the Corinthian city uh, were so corrupt that it would be inappropriate for me to disclose the details here. But I submit to you that the sins were gross beyond comprehension. It was like taking the very worst of what you think about when you think of the evil of Frisco and you combine it with the evil of Vegas and you put that together and there you have Corinth. To Corinthianize meant to go whoring. To call a woman a Corinthianite was to call her a prostitute. The whole city was debased to the core And I submit to you that the Apostle Paul is feeling um, the weight of the evil that surrounds him. And it is crushing against his soul. I want to add also that Corinth was a major trade uh, city, making it a strategic place for the power of the gospel to be unleashed. So Paul is weary. He's tired. He's exhausted as he arrives in Corinth. He has been chased halfway around the world. He has suffered persecution every time he successfully preaches the gospel. And now he enters Corinth and he is surrounded by unspeakable evil. What he, what Paul desperately needs at this point is a bit of encouragement. He needs fellowship. And that is exactly what God will give to him as we turn to observation number two. Paul becomes acquainted with Aquila. And Priscilla, Uh, Luke tells us in verse two, and he, Paul, found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers." Aquila and Priscilla will become great companions of the Apostle Paul. They will be co-laborers in the gospel of Christ. They most likely came to faith in Christ while they were in Rome. It was in Rome that Claudius banished all Jews uh, from Rome. Uh, One historian, Suetonius, records uh, that the Jews were rioting over the issue of Christ Uh, There's an uproar among the Jews regarding the person and work of Christ. Claudius responded to the uprising by commanding the Jews to leave. Aquila and Priscilla then end up in Corinth. The Lord used their ordeal to lead them to Corinth, where they would meet the apostle Paul. And this is a good reminder of how the Lord uses trials to accomplish good purposes. Uh, It is also no mistake that Aquila and Priscilla share the same trade as Paul. They were tent makers. As it turns out, the hospitable couple will provide the homeless Paul with a place to stay. And what a blessing that through Aquila and Priscilla, the Lord provides spiritual companionship, shelter, and friends, fellow brother and sister in Christ with whom to work and to talk about the things of the Lord together. The Lord is providing encouragement here for a weary soul. But what does Paul do when he has time to spare? When he is not busy as a tent maker, how does Paul invest his time? This takes us to the next observation, number three. Paul perseveres in proclaiming the gospel as he seizes every opportunity to make Christ known, look at verse four. Luke tells us that he, Paul, was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks to embrace Christ, of course, and to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This text highlights Paul's passion to proclaim Christ. Uh, When Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians 9.16, he declares, I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And in Colossians 1.28, he says, We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present every single man complete in Christ. And here in Acts 18.4, we see once again his passion to proclaim Christ. This text underscores Paul prioritizing time in his weekly planner to go out and to share the gospel. Even though Paul worked as a tent maker, he made time to share the gospel. This text also underscores Paul's consistency in sharing the gospel. The text tells us that he was sharing the gospel in the synagogue every Sabbath. Uh, You will also note that Paul was strategic when it comes to sharing the gospel. He went to where the people were gathered. He went to the synagogue. Paul prioritized preaching the gospel. He was consistent in preaching the gospel. And he was strategic in preaching the gospel. And perhaps then it is no coincidence that Paul's faithfulness will pave the way for greater opportunity. And this takes us to observation number four. Number four, Paul is reunited with Silas and Timothy and as a result, devotes himself full time to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse five. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word solemnly testifying to the jews that jesus was the christ he began devoting himself completely to the word uh, you will recall that silas was paul's backup plan when he first decided upon this second mission trip he intended to take his good friend and greatest encourager barnabas but that plan you remember fell through so paul takes silas who has proven to be a great help. And you will also recall how Paul first meets Timothy early in this second mission trip, when he came into Lystra. Paul saw the potential in Timothy and persuaded him to come along on the mission trip. Our text here tells us that Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. Silas was most likely returning from Philippi bringing with him a monetary gift from the Philippians and you can cross reference that with 2 Corinthians 11:9 along with Philippians 4:15 Timothy was returning from Thessalonica with a very positive report that the believers there were doing well and you can cross reference that with 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 It was a tremendous blessing for Paul to be reunited with such dear brothers and fellow workers for the cause of Christ. What an encouragement. Additional blessings came in the form of financial help as well as a praise report. The financial help resulted in Paul being freed up being freed up to devote himself completely to the ministry of the word. Paul can now double up on his efforts to advance the kingdom. Uh, Paul had been faithful as a tent maker to proclaim Christ whenever he had opportunity. And now the Lord has opened the door for him to devote himself full time to the ministry of God's word. Uh, This might be instructive for anyone who is here desiring to minister full time. The path to such an opportunity might include faithfulness as a tent maker. Are you working? Do you desire to transition into ministry uh, do what you can as a tent maker and then see if the Lord opens the door for you to transition into full-time Christian ministry. Uh, this also underscores the role that uh, churches can play in helping such folks to transition into full-time ministry. Paul could not have made the transition had it not been for the financial help of a local church. And so Paul is blessed to be able to devote himself full-time to the ministry of the word of God, as he faithfully testified to the Jews that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. This is amazing to me. This is amazing to me. Here we see a man in weakness, fear, trembling, who is persevering in his proclamation of Christ. We know that he had reason for encouragement, but we must not lose sight of the fact that ministry is not a walk in the park, and that Paul is bearing up under the weight of ministry. And we get a glimpse of this as we turn to observation number five. Paul is met with resistance. This would not be the first time. He is met with resistance from the Jews, and he redirects his efforts to the Gentiles. Look at verse 6. We read, and when they, they being the Jews, resisted and blasphemed. So they resist the preaching of Paul. They resist the gospel. This would have been disheartening for Paul. It would have been disheartening. He loved the Jewish people. And he wanted to see them to come, come to faith in Christ. He was willing to lay down his life for the Jews... In fact, he says as much later when he writes to the Romans during his stay at Corinth on this third missionary journey. Listen to what he says then in Romans nine two. he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And so you can imagine how difficult it would have been for Paul when the Corinthian Jews resisted and blasphemed. But Paul would not be undone. Listen to Luke describe Paul's response to the Jewish rejection. We read that he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. Paul defends the fact that he had faithfully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews at Corinth. They had heard all that they needed in order to get right with God. Paul had fully explained the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ God's plan of salvation was fully laid out. Paul held back no punches. And so Paul now could declare your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. May the Lord help us to faithfully share the gospel with the folks that he places in our own spheres of influence. May it be that at the end of the day, we can say, I am clean. Your blood be on your own heads. Uh, Luke describes Paul's next move. Look at verse seven. And he departed from there and he went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. So there you have it. Paul departs from the blasphemous and guilt-ridden Jews, and he goes all the way over to the house next door. Uh, The owner of the house was Titius Justus. His name indicates that he was a Roman, and since Romans typically had three names, many commentators speculate that this is Gaius Titius Justus. He could well be the Gaius of Romans 16.23 and 1 Corinthians one fourteen. The church met in Gaius' home, and if this Titius Justice is opening his home for believers such as Paul, then he may very well be Gaius Titius Justice. 1 Corinthians one fourteen tells us that Paul baptized Gaius, it could be that Paul comes into the home of Titius Justice, eventually baptizes him and the Crispus mentioned in the following verse, and then the church that gets planted ends up having a meeting place in the home of Gaius Titius Justice. Well, you can take that for whatever it's worth, and here I am getting ahead of myself. Uh, until this point, there's no clear, nothing clear, that folks were coming to faith under Paul's preaching in Corinth. The NASB version of verse 4 tells us that Paul was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But again, there is no reason to think that folks were coming to faith under the preaching ministry of the Apostle Paul at this point. Uh, The resistance of the Jews in verse 6 is the basis for Paul directing his attention to the Gentiles. But Paul is about to be in for a big surprise. And we see this as we come to observation six. Number six, the Lord begins a work of saving many people. God is going to begin a wonderful and a powerful work of saving many people. It tells us in verse eight, and Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized as well. I underscore the fact that they heard, they believed, and then they were baptized, and in that order. I want to highlight at this point the fact that Paul has reason to feel encouraged. Uh, the Lord provide, provided companionship to Aquila and Priscilla, And along with that, a place to stay. He had employment. The Lord provided opportunity for Paul to preach the gospel. The Lord brought Silas and Timothy back to Paul along with a praise report and a monetary gift freeing Paul to preach the gospel full time. He had reason to feel encouraged. God was giving him reason to feel encouraged. And now we read, that folks are beginning to come to faith in Corinth. It is no small matter that the synagogue leader, along with his entire household, came to faith in Christ. Folks that are steeped in their religion are often the most difficult converts. But here we see the power of the gospel to transform a man. Crispus and his family come to faith in Christ. I might also add that such a conversion would not have settled well with the Corinthian Jews. Hold on to that thought. Not only did Crispus and his household get saved, but Luke tells us many of the Corinthians, many of the Corinthians came to faith as well. We are talking about hard-hearted, morally despicable folks coming to faith in Christ. This Underscores the power of the gospel to transform the vilest of sinners. I have to wonder about the Apostle Paul. Remember when he wrote to the Romans a, a bit later. And, and, and he says, um, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor did they give thanks. But he says their foolish hearts were darkened and then God gave them over. And as you look at God giving them over at the very end, he talks about how they were exchanging natural relations for the unnatural. He gave them over to gross sexual sin. And here we discover in Corinth that those who were involved in gross sexual sin, Corinthian people are coming to faith in Christ. The Lord is doing a mighty work. He is beginning a mighty work in Corinth at this point. Nevertheless, Paul is struggling as he perseveres in ministry. The weight of ministry is crushing, and Paul is about to succumb to the pressure. It is as if he is a time bomb ready to explode. And perhaps this is because he knew experientially and he felt intuitively that he was now going to suffer all over again some form of persecution. After all, this had been the pattern, right? He preaches, lives transformed, and boom, persecution follows. And here we have the synagogue leader along with his entire household, as well as many Corinthians coming to faith in Christ. For Paul, it follows that he will now experience persecution At this stage of his ministry, he was tired, tired of getting beat up and chased around for preaching Christ. He feels afraid, and he is tempted to bail out on his commitment to preach Christ. Uh, He is in desperate need of encouragement. Unfortunately, his most encouraging friend and fellow fighter, Barnabas, was nowhere to be found. He was not around. Barnabas is likely on the island of Cyprus, busy encouraging John Mark, the one who you recall bailed out on the first mission trip. And now Paul, ironically, is feeling tempted himself to bail. Could God be using this season in Paul's life in order to pave the way for his reconciliation with John Mark? Perhaps Paul would be a bit more understanding now that he knows what it feels like to be tempted to withdraw from ministry opportunity. Whatever we make of Paul's eventual reconciliation with John Mark, we know that Paul is now on the verge of quitting. He is afraid. He is tempted to quit preaching. He might even feel alone, though such could not be further from the truth. He might even doubt that more conversions are on the horizon in Corinth. After all, they are an incredibly evil people. At this point, he is in desperate need. He is in desperate need for a word from the Lord. And that is exactly what he gets. And so this takes us to observation seven. The Lord encourages Paul through the words he speaks to him. The Lord encourages Paul through the words he speaks to him. Look at verse nine. And the Lord said to Paul in the night By a vision. And I submit to you that everything that the Lord says to Paul is relevant to where Paul is at at this point. God does not waste any words, and He is going to speak to Paul in a way that will minister personally to him in a very personal and relevant way. Listen to what the Lord says to Paul. Do not be afraid any longer. Do not be afraid any longer. But Go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city of Corinth. Paul experiences a vision from the Lord. He's awake when he receives the vision and in his vision, the Lord speaks clearly to him. The Lord begins by commanding Paul to not be afraid. The Lord issues this command because Paul, in fact, was struggling with fear. He was afraid of the persecution that might come his way as a result of folks coming to faith in Christ. The Lord then commands Paul to keep speaking the truth of the gospel. Keep proclaiming Christ. Clearly, Paul was on the verge of pulling away from proclaiming christ and he needed a strong exhortation from the lord to persevere in his proclamation Uh, the lord doubles up on his command by stating the same thing in the negative he then says to paul he commands paul do not be silent Clearly, God has a plan for the city of Corinth, and God wants to see folks in that city coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God intends to use the Apostle Paul as weak as he was, as afraid as he was, and as discouraged as he may have felt. God wanted to use him to do a great work in the city of Corinth. The Lord follows his commands with three encouraging promises. First, the Lord tells Paul that he is with him. He is with him. You would think that the great apostle Paul had no need to be told that the Lord was with him. You would think that his theology would be sound. And I submit to you that it was. Nevertheless, this passage makes it clear that he needed an encouraging reminder. Second, the Lord tells Paul that he will protect him. Listen to what he says. No man will attack you in order to harm you in this city of Corinth is what he is implying. No man here will attack you in order to harm you. What a relief to know (laughs) the pattern is going to be broken. Evidently, Uh, Paul feared getting beaten. He had been beaten before and he was not all that interested in getting beaten again. And so the Lord promises Paul that at least while in Corinth, he will not suffer physical harm. It's noteworthy that later during his third missionary journey, years later uh, on that journey, remember when he gathers the Ephesian elders together and he tells them, That the spirit was revealing to him that he is going to suffer in every city. On that occasion, he could stare persecution in the face and say, bring it on, bring it on. But here at this moment, he needed for the Lord to say, at this point, Paul, I'm telling you, you're safe. I am your protector and no harm is going to befall you in this city. Third, the Lord tells Paul that he has many people In the city of Corinth, Uh, in essence, there are those whom the Lord has chosen from the foundation of the earth, that in the city of Corinth, there were elect people that God was going to save. And the Lord wanted for Paul to know that this is a guarantee that Paul's ministry in Corinth will be met with success Folks will come to faith in Christ. Uh, This is an encouragement to a man who in his heart of hearts desires nothing more than to see people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. While each of these promises are directed specifically to Paul. They are equally true of us as well. Think about it. The Bible teaches that the Lord is with us. As we seek to do ministry for the glory of God and as we go through difficulties in the process of doing ministry and as we feel the weight of ministry coming down upon us from time to time, the Bible teaches us that the Lord is with us. He is with us to the very end of the age. He will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And what a comfort when the weight of ministry seems to be too great to bear. The Bible also teaches that the Lord is our protector. The Lord, in short, told Paul, I will protect you. And the Lord is our protector as well. He will not allow us to go through anything that is not filtered by his sovereign hand. He is the good shepherd in whose hand is the rod and staff that serve to protect us. We know that no matter what happens, it happens for our good. We will suffer no harm at the hand of the enemy unless it is for God's glory and for our good. The Bible also teaches that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's his desire that none should perish, but that all should receive eternal life. And we have no reason to think that the Lord would not want to save lost souls. Thus, we can share the gospel fully expecting that some will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the Lord tells Paul to keep on speaking. The Lord tells Paul, I've got many in the city. And I believe that the Lord would speak to us today and say, proclaim Christ preach the gospel, go into all of the nations and, 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 and bring people to Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so here the Lord fires off a few commands to Paul, followed with three comforting promises. Well, how does Paul respond? What does he do? This takes us to observation eight. Paul responds in faith to the word of the Lord. I love this passage. I love this passage. Verse 11 says, and he settled there. He settled there a year and six months. This is probably 18 additional months to however long he was there to begin with. It's been a short period of time so far. And it says teaching the word of God while he was among them. I love his faithful response to the Lord. It's amazing to think that Paul spends 18 months in this wicked city. This is no short period of time. And throughout Paul's time in Corinth, he focused his attention on teaching the word of God. Paul had been ready to throw in the towel. He was ready to quit. But the voice of the Lord thundered in his life. And he responded in faith. His obedience to the Lord is instructive for all of us. We may be going through difficult times. We may find that ministry is a challenge as a parent or as someone involved in ministry in your local church or in whatever ways you seek to minister to the glory of God. We may find that it is difficult But when the Lord gives command, we do well to persevere in obedience and in faith to God. We know that we should share the gospel with our neighbor, but fear grips us and we fail to follow through in sharing our faith. We forget that the Lord's with us. We worry about what others might think. What if they get offended? What if I look foolish? What if I fail, and we conjure up all kinds of excuses. Nevertheless, the Lord commands us to go to make disciples, and we have no choice but to obey. This is what Paul did he obeyed, he was faithful. But Paul was not the only one found to be faithful. And this takes us to observation number nine the Lord proved faithful to his promises to Paul. The Lord made promises to Paul, and he will cash in on his promises. He proves to be faithful. And Luke, the writer of this narrative, wants for us to take a peek at the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 12. But while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul, and they brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. False accusation. Oh no. The Jews with one accord rise up against Paul. It looks as if harm is going to befall Paul after all. Paul's senses tell him he is about to suffer. So he readies himself for a defense. But as it turns out, he does not need to defend himself the Lord is with him and the Lord cashes in on his promise to protect Paul look at verse 14 but when Paul was about to open his mouth intervention Galileo said to the Jews if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime O Jews it would be reasonable for me to put up with you But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. I am not going to prosecute this guy. I am not going to bring him to trial and I am not going to do what you want me to do. You want to see him suffer and that ain't going to happen under my watch. It says he drove them away from the judgment seat. And then they took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. And the point, the only point that I want to draw from this is that the Lord cashed in on his promise to Paul that no harm would befall him while in the city of Corinth. And Luke wants to illustrate that with the story right here. God's faithfulness to his promise. The Lord did not just promise to be with Paul and to protect him, but he also declared that many of the Corinthians would turn to Christ. He told them, I have many in this city. And this is affirmed by what Paul later writes uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Um, later on down the road, the apostle Paul is going to write to them, and he is going to say, to the church of God which is at Corinth. There is a church. It is at Corinth, he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. There are saints in the city of Corinth based upon this verse. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, listen to what Paul says. Again, this underscores the fact that God is true to his promise, that there would be souls saved in the city of Corinth. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know? that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Incidentally, as we have said before, Corinth was filled with a bunch of unrighteous people. He says, don't be deceived. And he's going to give a list of unrighteous types of activities and sinners. He says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of these people, Paul says, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And when you back up to the word idolater, that's amazing to think that an an idolater is someone who puts anyone or anything before the Lord and worships that rather than the Lord himself. There is a lot that is covered by this list. And Paul says, such will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. God did an amazing work in the city of Corinth. People that were guilty of the most disgusting sins were coming to faith in Christ. He says, such were some of you. There is hope for the most vilest of offenders. There is hope for the most evil of people. And what a blessing to know that our God is a merciful and gracious, compassionate, kind, loving, willing to forgive type of a God. You see that on display in the city of Corinth. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The Lord made it clear that he would save many people in Corinth. And that is exactly what he chose to do. This is a good reminder to us that God is faithful to his word. What he says will come to pass. We have every reason to trust in him. The Lord proved faithful to his promises to Paul during his stay in Corinth. And so this takes us. To observation 10, our final observation. Follow along with me. Paul, Paul leaves Corinth greatly encouraged and with a renewed commitment to the Lord. Look at verse 18. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren. He leaves Corinth and he put out to sea for Syria and with him were Priscilla, and Aquila. Willing and able ministry partners. Paul is now leaving Corinth with him. Are Priscilla and Aquila. He met them when he first arrived in Corinth. And over the 18 plus months. They proved to be a tremendous blessing. And now they are joining Paul. As he finishes out the second mission trip. And Luke goes on to say. Listen to this. In Centria, He had his hair cut. For he was keeping a vow. One would be tempted, as I was, to gloss over this verse. But then I stopped and I thought to myself, there's a reason it's here. What's the big deal? Paul is in Centuria and he decides to get a haircut. But Luke makes it clear this is no ordinary haircut when he says, for he was keeping a vow. Uh, Commentators agree that this in all likelihood was a Nazarite vow of dedication and commitment to the Lord. The Nazarite vow communicates that one sees himself as being set apart for the work of the Lord. It expresses one's desire to be fully yielded to God completely come what may I am all yours. You can do what you want. I am sold out. I want to surrender my life to you, even if that means delivering myself over to the flames. I am yours, God. The Nazarite vow is described in Numbers chapter 6, and you can read through that at your own leisure later. In short, the person entering a Nazarite vow grew his hair out for a time. I cannot enter into a Nazarite vow. (laughs) And that disappoints me. (laughs) He would then have his hair cut and then bring it to the priest for the ceremonial completion of the vow. In connecting the dots, Paul begins the Nazarite vow, probably at the end of his time in Corinth. In Centuria, he has his hair cut. He then must hasten to get to Jerusalem uh, which explains his desire to get through Ephesus quickly. And if you read on ahead and you, and you read through Paul coming through Ephesus, you get the very real sense that he was in a hurry to get out of there, which is amazing because that's where he wanted to go earlier in the trip. God gives him the opportunity to get there. He gets there. He speaks to the Jews. They say, come back. This is no, I got to go. Why do you got to go? Because I got to get to Jerusalem. I've got this vow that I am intending to fulfill. I've got to take my lock of hair and I've got to give it to the priest there, and we've got to complete this ceremonial um, act of, of my commitment to Christ. Paul will leave Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and hasten to Jerusalem to complete the vow. So you may wonder why Paul would engage in an Old Testament custom. Now that he is a follower of Christ, understand that this has nothing to do with salvation. Paul in no way thinks that such a vow made him holier than other people. But clearly such a custom had meaning for Paul personally. It was a way that Paul could express his appreciation and renewed commitment to the Lord. For Paul, it serves as an outward expression of God's gracious work in his heart. What this tells us is that Paul leaves Corinth in a different state from when he arrived. No longer was he tempted to throw in the towel. He was renewed in his commitment to serving the Lord, no matter the cost. A place of potential defeat has now been turned into a place of victory. And by the grace of God, he did not abandon Corinth. Had he done so, we would not have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians books that were written while Paul was here in Corinth during this second mission trip. Uh, We would not have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. After all, Paul would have had no need to write them. And such letters serve to remind us of the power of the gospel to transform lives. And so in our passage today... We have seen how the Lord encourages a weary servant. Paul arrives in Corinth in weakness, fear, trembling, overwhelmed with concern that his ministry efforts were coming to naught, yet the Lord provides reason for encouragement in the form of new companions, shelter, employment. Paul ministers part-time until he is reacquainted with Silas and Timothy. That in and of itself would have been reason for more encouragement, And and they bring with them a praise report regarding the Thessalonians and the financial gift from the Philippians. Paul was then free to minister full time. Here, Paul has more reason for encouragement. Luke tells us that Paul's efforts are initially met with resistance. We then learn that the synagogue leader and his household, as well as many Gentiles, they come to faith in Christ. And despite all of these reasons to be encouraged, Paul still experienced the inward struggle in his heart. Can you relate to that? Do you understand what it is like when the Lord has blessed you so much yet inwardly you are struggling? You are struggling to serve the Lord? You find that it's hard that the way of ministry um, you know, can get the better of you from time to time? He was afraid. He was ready to abandon any effort to proclaim the gospel while in Corinth. Uh, he was aware of the pattern. He preaches. Sinners get saved. Persecution follows. So here we go again. Paul just knew persecution was coming his way. He's afraid and he is ready to abandon ministry at Corinth. And it is at such a low point that the Lord steps in and he speaks his word to Paul in a vision. There is power in the word of God. There are low points in life where our greatest need is a word from the Lord. And God's word to Paul proves powerful. He remains in Corinth 18 months, and he witnesses the transforming power of the gospel in the lives of some of the most depraved people. And by the time he leaves, he's greatly encouraged, and he is better prepared to make bigger sacrifices for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. This narrative reminds us of several truths that serve us well in our ministry as we journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel. And so let me end with a few of these truths. Number one, the Lord sometimes allows his servants to experience seasons of great difficulty. We learned that last week with Joseph and we're learning that today as we think about the Apostle Paul himself. Number two, the Lord gives to us his word so that we might endure the seasons of difficulty that he allows in our lives right this is what he does for paul he gave to paul his word i like what the psalmist says in 119 verse 50 he says this is my comfort and my affliction that thy word has revived me number three the lord is faithful and we do well to embrace his word as we endure seasons of difficulty. What is interesting is that the Apostle Paul earlier in his letter to the Galatians, which would have been written before he got to Corinth, we read in Galatians, I think at 6 9, Paul says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Though he was tempted to grow weary, God was faithful to him, and he did re- reap at the end of the day by the grace of God. Second Thessalonians 3.13. Paul would have written this while he was in Corinth now. In Second Thessalonians 3.13, we read Paul saying, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. He was concerned about the people of God growing weary. He knew what it was like to get weary, and he wanted to protect others from such weariness. Do not grow weary of doing good, he says. Fourth, the Lord is faithful, and he will bring every one of his promises to pass. The Apostle Paul highlights the Lord's faithfulness in the following passages. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3 3, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. In 1 Corinthians 1 9, he says, God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. And he says to the Corinthians as well in 10 13, no temptation has seized you except that is common to man. And God is faithful. He's faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And God saw this being played out in his own life. When he was tempted, God was faithful and God saw him through. Number five, the Lord uses seasons of difficulty in our lives in order to reveal his power in and through us. Listen once again to what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 2 3, as he reflects back on him coming to Corinth, I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. My emotion is rooted in the fact that I find myself appreciating my brother Paul and the friend that he is to us and the example that he has set for us and his endurance. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He is understanding that God's power was unleashed in his weakness. As he reflects back and he sees all that God had done, I take no credit for myself All the glory goes to God. I came in weakness, fear, trembling, but God empowered me for the ministry and God himself did a mighty work among you guys, the Corinthians. My message in preaching, not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Let us who are weary trust in the power of God that by his spirit he will strengthen us in the inner person and that he will cause us to thrive to such a way that we will experience Christ dwelling in our heart through faith, grounded in the incomprehensible love of the Lord Jesus Christ and filled with all fullness. Let us trust that he can use us in our weakness to accomplish great things even as he did with our brother, the Apostle Paul. I want to ask you to join with me in prayer, please. Let's close in prayer. And as the ushers come forward to receive the offering, we prepare to give to the Lord a small portion of what he has given to us. Lord, we pray that you would use what we give for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that at the end of the day, above all things, you might glorify your holy name and that you might see fit to advance your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us opportunity to share Christ with those that don't know you and that, Lord, we would see that you, by your power, are able to cause people to be born again despite the fact that we ourselves are weak and ignorant. Lord, let your glory be expressed in these clay pots that we are take our lives and let them be fully consecrated lord to thee lord as we sing to you we pray that you would be pleased with with the hearts with which we sing praise to you in jesus name we pray amen